Jamie Summers from Afternoons with Heart and Humor. Something you may not know about me is I'm really conscious of what I put in my body. So I eat healthy, try to stay as active as possible. That's also why I was so excited when I heard that Dr. Kellum at the Kellum Stem Cell Institute is able to retrieve my own stem cells and place them exactly where I need them most with focused infusions. If you're ready for something more effective and a healthier way to heal, get more information at KellumStemCellInstitute.com. Hey, it's Doug catching up with Bill Vanderbush, co-author of the book Reckless Grace, The Gift, The Mystery, The Embrace. Bill is a third-generation minister who's pastored for over 25 years. Consuming passion is to empower people and live out the mystery of our union with Christ. Mr. Vanderbush, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thanks, Doug. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. Well, when I see the book title, Reckless Grace, for all the songs that we play here, it makes me think of the song Reckless Love. So I don't know if the two of those are connected or not, but what is Reckless Grace? Well, you know, first off, they're really not connected. This is a message that actually was birthed about 10 years ago. And I had stumbled across, I'd gone back to to revisit the Gospel of John and stumbled across John chapter uh, 20, verse 23, where Jesus says, Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And I had a realization that I did not actually believe that. Mm. I mean, I, I, I read it. It was in red in my Bible, but I didn't believe it. And, uh, and, and I, I felt like the Lord was saying to me, what would be the ramifications if you actually believed that this was true? And I realized he didn't give me any sense of guidelines as to how I was to release his grace. I, I realized the only thing I could do was to look at his life. And I realized throughout the course of his life that he released it in such a I would I would that's where the term reckless had come from mm. was it's a sense of if I'm hanging on a cross and I'm doing something self sacrificing for somebody else that doesn't necessarily control the outcome, like I'm not controlling them with my sacrifice, it doesn't guarantee that they're actually gonna respond to it. That means I'm thinking uh, I'm no regard for myself whatsoever. That's what makes it reckless. It's not reckless in the sense that it's it's uh, reckless in in its sense of destruction. It's reckless in that it's completely abandoned of your of your sense of self uh, self um, uh, protection. Mm. And and now it's it's just a full on self sacrifice. That's that's what makes this thing so reckless. No regard for your personal safety or protection at all, but purely laying down your life for the benefit of somebody else. So that's why we call it reckless grace. So obviously something that does not come naturally at all to us, selfish human beings <laughs> that we are. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. I definitely don't think it's something that would come naturally in terms of like what we think of as human nature. But when I think of when I think of the regenerating, transforming grace of Christ, he, he has a way of filling us with such a measure of divine compassion. If, if we ever took any ownership of it ourselves, it would cause us to be proud. But, you know, when I surrender to the grace of Christ, I start to realize His compassion begins to move my heart. And the love that I have for people that actually motivates a life laid down for the cause of, of you know, sharing the gospel with somebody else is not something I can take credit for because I didn't do it. And, and so it doesn't promote pride. It actually promotes radical humility. And, uh, you know, so that that's the thing. I, I feel like I feel like there's something to that, that once we get that as, as the body of Christ, then loving our enemies starts to actually become possible. It's not so much of a pipe dream anymore. 
Well, and that leads me into this next question. We may not always see them as enemies, but adversaries. How do you feel this book and this message connects in where we find ourselves with racial divide and political divide and just all this craziness of the moment? Oh, it's so important for that right now. Uh, I feel like the timing of the release of the book was really vital. And, and, you know, we kicked the tires on this thing for a long, long time before we ever actually put it into print. Uh, because when I first, the first two years I even preached this message or danced around this message, I, I didn't fully believe what I was talking about. I couldn't erase it out of Scripture. Mm. And the problem is, is I felt like I felt like this term, love your enemies, what Jesus had said there, was such a radical grace that it almost, like, it almost felt like, like I was compromising my own values or the gospel if I dared to actually love my enemies. But here, I, I began to start realizing that what Jesus had done there is actually revealed to me uh, his heart for me while I was his enemy. You know, if he tells me to love my enemies, what do I think he's going to do with his? And so we have an idea that, I mean, you you start talking to some folks and you begin to believe that Jesus doesn't want everybody to come to repentance and knowledge of the truth. You you begin to start believing that he only died for some and you start realizing, oh my goodness, I, I, I I I don't know if I can believe this. It almost sounds too good to be true. But then, you know, when I, when I look at, when I look at the way that God has touched and changed and transformed people's lives through the, through the message of the, just the recklessness of the grace of God, I feel, I feel like, you know, nobody can be your enemy without your permission. And I look at like Psalm 24, where David, King David, who had tons of enemies, uh, he, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, by the time we get to memorizing that chapter and we get to that part, it sort of rolls off our tongue. We don't really think about the, the impact of the words. But if there's an enemy sitting in front of me, and, and, and by enemy, he's bent on my destruction, doesn't like me, doesn't want to hang out, certainly, uh, you know, would, would probably want to cause me some harm. That would be how I would define an enemy. I'm thinking, you know, God, please hand me a weapon of warfare. Why are you cooking dinner? <laughs> but in Hebrew culture, to sit down and break bread with somebody is to seek to understand, to come to a place of understanding and, and communion in a, in a sense, not to compromise your values, not to compromise the gospel, not to compromise the integrity of your heart, but to to realize that, I mean, perhaps in that course of time, conversation, and, and sharing and breaking of bread, you actually have an opportunity to be a living invitation for the enemy to discover that he's actually your brother, and, and you realize you're not enemies at all. And so I, I realized when, you know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, and he goes on to define it, he says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. And if we look at that, that term, pray for those who despitefully use you, we're looking at motive, an evil motive to cause pain, and that's you know, and and this is where it gets super. This is where it gets offensive to people's hearts. But again, forgiveness frees the forgiver. That that's looking at, you know, rapists and molesters and people who've done like really horrible things that have caused people. It is so many people, such such a massive percentage of people have experienced just un, uh, uh, unimaginable pain at the hands of people that ought to have love them. And, and so what do we do with that? We find ourselves in captivity and bondage to the, the decisions that somebody else made. And so when I, when I look at a person through the eyes of, of Christ and I realize God knew them from before the foundation of the world, 
he, he knows who they really are. And somewhere along the line, they forgot who they are. They don't know who they are. They've never actually been told their identity in Christ. They've never been told what the Lord believes about them. When I begin to see that, my heart, instead of being filled with anger, begins to be filled with, with compassion. And, 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 and I want somehow to, to create a path of redemption uh, so, so that the image and likeness upon a person, the image and likeness of God in a person can be redeemed. And, uh, and so, I, I, you know, I feel, I feel like that the, the key right now in this culture of division, great division, is a radical, reckless, laid-down grace. It doesn't compromise the values of the gospel, but actually puts them on display in such a radical way that we become a living invitation for people to discover the truth of their identity. And, uh, and, and that's what I'm seeing is happening in healing uh, of hearts really all over the place that are hearing this message. Mm, powerful, powerful. Well, we talk about forgiveness and extending grace to others, but then you also want to make sure that we don't miss a step, and that's actually accepted for ourselves. Absolutely. And the hardest thing, you know, is, and people say, well, you know, I, I just can't forgive myself. So I look at the, the words of Jesus right beyond Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, where he says, you know, and if you... If you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you, but if you do forgive, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. And those words used to scare me because I thought of them as a warning. I mean, they felt they felt somewhat fearful. And this is, and I hope this makes sense. Maybe people have to go back and listen to this line a, a couple of times to catch it. But um, what I felt like the Lord said is this. It, it took me to portions of the Scripture and kind of pieced them together for me, and, and, and they were this. Perfect love casts out fear, and that God is love. It's His overall pervasive nature. And I realized if I read the words of Jesus and it actually causes me to have a reaction that partners with fear, then I just misunderstood what love just said to me. Mm. Because you, you can tell the truth. You, you can tell you've encountered the truth because the result is it will set you free. I'm not going to be in bondage to fear. So I felt like the Lord was inviting me to go back and revisit this again. And, and this, is, this is just what started coming out to me. And I was journaling this down. And I said, you know, this warning uh, really, it resonates really strongly with me. I couldn't figure out why. And I felt like the Lord said, go back and look at that word warning. It's very, it's, it's not, that's not an accurate description of what I'm giving you here. And I thought, what's the word? And the word invitation came to mind. I crossed out the word warning and I put the word invitation. I realized this isn't a warning, it's an invitation. And so I thought, what's this an invitation to? And I began to realize that when I want to release grace over myself, the key is to find somebody to give mercy and grace away to. The minute I give mercy and grace away to somebody else, it begins to manifest in my life, begins internally in my own heart. And, um, and there's a lot of keys to this, and boy, I could talk about this for the next, you know, 10 years, I think, and never exhaust the subject. But a person says, I, I don't know how to forgive myself. Okay, well, getting our eyes off the self is the first key, and look around and see the people all around you that need mercy and grace, and start giving it away. And the more we release it to someone else, the more it begins to manifest in our own heart and our own life and around us. We get to keep what we give away when it comes to the grace of God. So there's something really important about that. Man, I love that. Well said. Thank you. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about you consider receiving God's grace a fourfold agreement? Um, wow, yeah. So, you know, this is actually my co-author's uh, thought process. Uh, you know, the believe it, receive it, you know, it's the lather, rinse, repeat kind of a thing. <laughs> um, in other words, there's a bit of a processing to it. It's, it's, there's, there's steps to it. And, and we created this for the purpose of just kind of 
for those people that like lists and like things in a real orderly fashion. I'm a little bit more organic. She's a little bit more orderly. And so uh, she said for her, it became, it became a process where she realized it wasn't just a one-and-done thing. It wasn't that I just forgave the person and then I just walked away. I had to live a lifestyle of this. I'm beginning to realize it's kind of like the way that we receive Jesus. And the way I say it is like this. You can become a believer in Jesus in a moment by faith, just by saying yes to Jesus. But Jesus never told us to make believers. He told us to make disciples. And the difference between a disciple and a believer is, is a believer says yes, but maybe won't say yes tomorrow, especially when things get hard. And I see a lot of people do this. They vacillate. You know, they're super excited because they went to a meeting last night, but they slept on it this morning. Their yes is not quite as strong as it was the night before. But a disciple is a person that says yes and keeps saying yes, and, and keeps saying yes when their yes is about to cost them something. And I think what God is doing in, at least he did for my wife and I and for Britt and her husband, Mike, and for many other people that we've met, is he's creating disciples of grace, and that is people that forgive. And it's not just like, you know, like Peter said, hey, how often do I have to do this? You know, <laughs> seven times? You know, and Jesus responds and goes 70 times seven. So it's, it's, a, it's an encouragement to be grace disciples. And, and that's what, I mean, I think that's what he does. He takes all of the things that we meant for cursing, and he wants to actually turn it around uh, for good. As a matter of fact, that, that 70 times 7, I, I don't know if anybody has heard the origin story of the 70 times 7, but it comes from a character in the Bible that very few people, I think, really even think about because he doesn't get much of a mention, but his name is Lamech, and he's in Genesis chapter 4, and he, uh, uh, he's a uh, uh, descendant of Cain. And he says this phrase in that chapter, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me. Though Cain's vengeance be sevenfold, my vengeance will be 70 times seven. And then down through Israel's history, and you can see this in the writings of the Talmud, that phrase, 70 times seven, is used to multiply vengeance. In other words, we're keeping the vengeance alive. And they would do that for the, you know, for the sake of family line, you know, and feuds would erupt around this 70 times seven thing. So when Peter says, you know, hey, how often do I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus suddenly takes the occasion to take a phrase that culturally had been used to multiply vengeance, and he turns it around to where now when we think 70 times 7, we think grace and forgiveness. Mm. And he takes that exact same phrase and says, no, you forgive 70 times 7. And I think that's what God is doing in the hearts of so many people today, especially last night even we were at a, a church here in St. Augustine, Florida, and I watched God just touching, healing hearts, melting people with His grace to where they can begin to see themselves through his eyes. Not just that, but others. And we watch many, many people, even even bodies be healed as a result of the grace that's released over somebody else. Really a fascinating, fascinating thing, this thing of grace. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface on it. Wow, this is fascinating, encouraging uh, everyone to get the full message. One more, one more question, and that has to do with something that my wife and I talk a lot about, and that is the idea of boundaries. And then struggling as a believer, we're supposed to we're supposed to forgive and embrace, but boundaries are important too, right? How does that all tie together? This is an important point that we unpack in the book a lot, and um, you know, it, it, grace doesn't doesn't make you a doormat. It doesn't mean that you give people the right or permission to walk all over you. Grace actually is the empowering force of heaven upon your life to be able to supernaturally 
do what you could not have done before, uh, uh, endure perhaps what you could couldn't have done before, and 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 overcome, confront, you know, all of those things are part of grace. And um, but grace always has love at its core, and uh, and when love is the fuel for the actions that we take, people will people will know that they are being confronted by love. You know, when Jesus went into the temple, you know, with the whip, he was doing something that was actually corrective in nature. And, uh, and, and love does that. Grace actually confronts for the purpose of correction, not punishment. And that's the thing with, uh, with the, the grace of God. Grace gives you actually the encouragement the overpowering, overwhelming encouragement to bring correction where people know they've been loved as a result of it. And, uh, and I think a lot of times people think, well, you know, I, I, I speak the truth in love. I stop and think about it and I go, well, you know, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure that, that what you just spoke set them free. So perhaps love was not the core value of the communication. But again, it, and we pack, unpack this a lot in the book, that grace doesn't make you a doormat, and it does empower people who weren't bold before to confront issues, to confront uh, uh, people that, you know, uh, sometimes the gospel, presentation of the gospel looks like confrontation. And Jesus did this often, but he always did it in such a, a skillful way that he could sit down with a, with a woman at, at a well in what seems to be a really strange situation culturally, and start to unveil and reveal things hidden in her. And instead of running away and never coming back again, she runs to go get everybody to, to, to hear what this guy's got to say. So there must have been something of the spirit of what he released that, that she caught on to real quick. And I think when we, you know, Jesus said, my words to you are spirit and life. And made in his image and likeness, I think when we speak, we have the ability to release that same effect, that people ought to be able to recognize the spirit of the love and the grace of God upon what we say. So even if they're confronted, they don't feel rejected. They know that they're loved and they're accepted. Because people are always going to move towards love. And, uh, and, and if, if it happens to be the church rejecting somebody, I guarantee you that the, where they're going to move towards is acceptance. They're going to move towards wherever they feel some sort of acceptance. And it, more than likely, it's going to be darkness. And when we reject grace, we're actually pushing people towards being accepted by something that's actually going to lead them to destruction. And so when it comes down to it, grace is, is a non-negotiable in the kingdom of God. We have no choice but to release and extend grace. So we've got to somehow figure out how to get this one right. Mm, man, I'm taking notes left and right here. The book is Reckless Grace, The Gift, The Mystery, The Embrace. Bill Vanderbush and Britt Eaton. There's also a study guide available. You can find out more at uh, BillVanderbush.com. Was there anything else we wanted to make sure we get across before we wrap up? I'm just feeling right here, Doug, that there's something really important about this message. Some people out there may be feeling like, okay, I, I, I don't know if this it, it applies to me. And I would draw people's attention to Luke 4.18 when Jesus began his ministry, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim freedom. And he mentions two groups of people there. And so people say, well, is this message for me? So I'll say, if you fall into these two groups, one of these two groups, then this message is absolutely for you. And the two groups he mentions are captives and prisoners. And the difference between the two is that the reason that they find themselves in bondage. 
uh, captives are in bondage and it's not their fault. Somebody else made a decision and now they are bound by the decision of another. Prisoners, on the other hand, are in bondage, but it usually is their fault. Not always, but usually it is their fault. They did the crime, now they have to do the time. And I think the human mind, uh, our our man-made justice system or our, our human justice system says that captives should go free. Prisoners, on the other hand, uh, they, they, they got to pay for what they did. But an interesting thing about the grace of God is it, it's, it's a little bit more, um, I, I would say it's a little bit more scandalous than, than, than we, uh, we are oftentimes willing to believe. And, and it has to do with this, that Jesus looks at his kids, essentially. This is God looking at his children, looking at humanity. And he says, I see, I see you in bondage. I see you in chains. And maybe you guys are trying to figure out how you got there so you can figure out who to blame. But I just see two groups of people, people in chains because of what somebody else did and people in chains because of what they've done. And I'm not so much concerned about how you got there. Let's just work on this. I have one word to declare over both of you, and that would be this, freedom, liberty. And so if any person is listening to this, maybe you're finding yourself in bondage to unforgiveness, to bitterness, um, to offense. And it's not your fault. Somebody else did something. They signed you up in an assignment. You got to give grace away. You didn't sign up for that course. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, I did. I did some stuff. It's my fault. I got to pay. And so now you're looking. You're looking at a life of bondage to regret and guilt and shame. I think the Lord would look at both groups. And this is for every person that's listening to this, whether you're a captive or a prisoner. And just declare over you that his word over you is freedom. He wants you free. He wants you free to know who you really are. He wants you free to fully experience his empowering love so that you can, in turn, go out and liberate and bring others to freedom. And that freedom, of course, is it's not a concept or an idea. It's a person. It's, it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the truth of his, of his nature. It's the, it's the, the, the power of his blood. It's his resurrection. And so it, it, that's, that's who it's for. That's who the gospel is for, for captives and prisoners. And I think we've all been perhaps one or both of those at some time. But if anybody's listening and suffering under the crushing weight of condemnation from either being a captive or a prisoner, the message of the grace of Christ is for you.